News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research with Alex Lynn. Hello. Professor Christina Greer is in Portugal. She'll be joining us on the phone later in the episode. And look, in 1989, the year of the Central Park joggers attack, there were a then record 1,905 murders in New York City. In 1990, the city finally shattered the 2,000 murder ceiling with a still record 2,245 murders. That includes the 87 people who uh, were torched to death in the Happy Land fire when an arsonist aiming to get at his girlfriend with the uh, illegal social club in the Bronx on fire in what at the time was the largest mass murder in U.S. history. That man, Julio Gonzalez, just died in 2016, which was the last year until this one the city had more than 300 murders, all of which is to say we're in a very different, much safer reality than in the so-called bad old days. That hasn't stopped people from pointing to the murder of Tessa Majors, an 18-year-old Barnard student who was killed in Morningside Park by three young teens, a 13-year-old and two 14-year-olds who had been looking to rob her from saying that we're now approaching a tipping point of some sort or another. Um, former police commissioner Bernie Carrick, who'd been jails commissioner before that, uh, and then was a minister in Iraq in the early years of our war there and then became a convicted felon, said the uh, murder of majors is the fault of every one of the city's socialist, leftist, corrupt politicians that's been part of the reversal of Rudy Giuliani's crime reduction initiatives that started in 1994. Carrick was commissioner in 2001. Uh, there's some dark history there you can read about elsewhere. When the city had 649 murders, or more than twice as many as we're going to have this year. But despite that, this horrific killing of a uh, young woman new to the city by very young teens has captivated much of the city and is still being discussed a full week later. Joining us on the phone right now to discuss it is Michael Daly of the Daily Beast. Let's get right to it. Hello. Hey. Hey. Michael, thank you for uh, for joining us to talk about your reporting here. A lot of our listeners know, but will you just take us through what happened, what we understand about this, and, and what's going to be happening with these kids, one in custody, one who's been released, and one who the police are still looking for going forward? Uh, for the police believe this young woman, 18-year-old, Ms. Majors, student at Barnard, and she was down in Morningside Park just after nightfall. She was approached by three teens, police believe her age 113, 114, and I believe the other's 14 as well. She was stabbed repeatedly. She made her way back up these steep steps leading back to Columbia and Barnard just beyond. She got to the top there were many reports that the security guard was not there, was making his or her rounds. I'm told that the guard was actually there. They don't make rounds. But when she got to the top, 
rather going straight to the booth, she apparently went over to some benches, towards some benches off to the side. And she was bending over with her hands on her knees. And the guard saw her at that point and thought that she was had been running. She was wearing like running shoes and leggings and thought that she was just catching her breath, that she was winded. And then she fell down and then rose and started, took a step in the direction of Barnard and, and collapsed. At that point, the guard knew that there's something more serious going on. Called the police and 911, which sent the police and an ambulance. And paramedics arrived, but they were unable to save her. On top of the booth, above the booth, there are multiple cameras, four if I'm right. Apparently one of them captured kind of a grainy version of what three figures approaching this young woman and one of them moving as if punching or stabbing her. They followed other videos and other information in the neighborhood and they identified these three young men who all go to IS, VSIS 180 um, just across from the park. Uh, they ended up locking up the 13-year-old, whose name has been printed by some people, um, even though the 13-year-old has not been charged as an adult. They either picked up or had someone come in. The, the other kid, a 14-year-old, they then released. It seems to be, in, in, in federal law, if Sammy Gravano says John Gotti did this, they can lock up and convict John Gotti. But in state law, if Sammy Gravano said John Gotti did this, they need some corroborating evidence so they can't convict them. I think it may be that. I don't think they have any corroborating evidence. They And that's why they released the 14-year-old. Right, right. And the other one I, apparently was on his way in to the precinct and then suffered a change of heart and seemed to have bolted. I don't know whether he was with a lawyer or a guardian or a parent. I don't know. The 13-year-old was questioned with the uncle present. So, I mean, they, they can talk to you at that point. And, um, but did not ask for a lawyer, right? And the 13-year-old's lawyer now is saying, uh, is saying, you know, this was pushed and coerced and my client was there but didn't see what happened. As I'm, I'm do, reading today. I mean, you know, it's not for nothing. All cops tell their kids, don't speak to the police. And they're not your friend. You know, they're not there to like, you know, they're there to find out what happened and lock up the person they feel there's evidence did. I mean, I think that the backdrop to all this is, you know, Central Park Five. I mean, it was just another replay of that as these kids confessing under duress or I don't think this is a replay of that. You notice that kid's lawyer in court said that, you know, the, the detectives yelled at the kid and the kid never said that he knew they were going to rob this woman. But the lawyer did not say the kid wasn't there and did not say that the woman wasn't robbed. Michael, can you uh, talk a little about your reporting in this story at the uh, Daily Beast? Um, Michael's had two really impressive dispatches worth reading. Barnard's student who came to NYC Full of hope has unimaginable end. These aren't easy reads, but they're really worth reading. But I'm hoping you could talk about the, the piece you wrote the following day, the little kid suspected in Tessa Major's murder, and th- this deli and the girlfriend of one of the boys who 
you heard about and then then encountered there? Just, just to give a sense of. Oh, who she's these not a girlfriend. That girlfriend is not. She she knows him. The, the um, younger girl. The, yeah. There's another girl that the girlfriend was the one who got kicked. This is the 13 year old. Yeah. So you figure, you know, you start asking around, and then you, someone was saying that they hung out in buildings near the park, and uh, they were causing trouble there. So you start ringing doorbells. And, you find out that a bunch of kids were going to this one building across from the park, but a couple of days ago they put an alarm there so they can't get up. They would play on the last stairway landing leading to the roof. And then you go around and you talk to people, and there's a corner store right near the school. And they start telling you about these kids, and then they tell you that the detectives called them about the kids. And the detectives told them that the uh, kids who have been causing trouble at that store were the same ones they are looking at for the murder. And what kind of trouble were they were they causing there? Uh, stealing, threatening. A couple of days before the killing, this one girl, not thirteen, came running in a panic into the store, and then this thirteen-year-old came in right behind her, and she fell down, and he kicked her. So the woman behind the counter called the police and told the girl, "You ought to talk to the police because." She just took it as domestic violence because she was told that they were an item, the boy and the girl. And she thought that uh, the girl ought to speak to the police. And apparently she did. But, I mean, if it had been a grown man and a grown woman and it was domestic violence, the police have to make a call. They don't have a choice. It's not discretionary. But they didn't arrest anybody, apparently. You know, it's just, you know, right, you know. 13-year-old kids having a squabble. Um, none of it was, like, major. I mean, none of it was... Well, you know, the people in the store say the kids, you know, talked a lot about robbing people, and you know... But, I mean, just for context, uh, the, which your your article, which is incredibly uh, incredible, powerful read, uh, The Little Kids Suspected in Tessa Major's Murder, can you just give us a little context of the neighborhood? When you talk about a group of kids who are stealing a few candy bars, even though... Not just a few candy bars, but like kind of making trouble. They're loud. One of them gets into a fight with his girlfriend inside a deli. This is, for me, pretty reminiscent of the goings-on around most like public high schools. And up yeah. there where... No, it's not so are... different. I mean, it's, what's different is the kids are younger. Right. For one. For two, it's the neighborhood has gotten markedly better, if you want to use that. Not completely fortunate word, but uh, it's gotten safer. Crime has gone down. You know, these white people moving in, people who suffered through all the bad years are now getting pushed out. And you talk to the building super who's like, he's wearing a Plattsburgh sweatshirt because his kid is at the University of Plattsburgh. His kid's just a year older than the girl who got murdered. And he's saying that uh, he's kind of had enough because these kids are just constantly coming in sending up huge clouds of marijuana, <laughs> being rude, causing trouble. I mean, they're just, they're rambunctious kids. But I think the, the thing that's different about them is that they don't respond if an adult says something to them, be it a cop or the super or the guy in the neighborhood or the person behind the counter. Two more, two more quick questions for you. I'm sorry to jump in just uh, no. while we have your time. In the New York Post... Which, uh, which, as you alluded to, is the paper that keeps naming this 13-year-old, where, where other people, I think, much more appropriately are not. Bob McManus compared this to the uh, Brian Watkins murder in 1990. 
Um, right. do, do you see that as, as, as an apt or appropriate comparison? Obviously, it's a very different city now. There were 2,234 uh, well, murders that year. I mean, that was also, that was a kind of wolf pack of kids, as, you know, who were, I mean, they were half rampage. And these, I think this is like a small version of that. I mean, first of all, they're younger. There's a smaller number of, but what is kind of similar is the, Jump in very quickly. Response to the ju- press. Just you know, for readers the, who don't you know. know. Wow, but, out of town. You know, I mean, if that had been an 18-year-old girl from Harlem that got stabbed to death in the park, you and I would not be talking right now. Ah, uh, and then last. It's true. We yeah, wouldn't. Yeah. Which brings me for just a second to Ed Mullins, and I think this is probably where we end for right now. So Ed Mullins is the head of the, the Sergeant's Benevolent Association, which is the second largest police union. Went on with uh, John Castamitidis, um, a local billionaire who sort of uh, rents his own radio show, <laughs> and said that Tessa Majors, which other police sources have not said with their names attached and some have denied on background, was in the park to buy weed. The, the family right. put out a statement pushing back very hard on this, saying that he was blaming her for her own murder and adding that they'd been asked to be quiet with their own speculation by the police and that they were very taken aback. To see a police official publicly speculating in that way, I'd, I'd just be interested as somebody who follows the city and, and its police closely, w- what your read on all that was. Like, even if it was true, why would he come out with that? I think, you know, that's him trying to, it, he is trying to blame the girl. I mean, why would you bring that up? I mean, why would you? Why would you say that? You, you'd have to know whether it's true or not. It's going to cause the family great distress, right? Now, you've got a family that's already suffered, I mean, unimaginable loss at the holiday season. And you do that for what? Nobody's saying that it was like a drug ripoff, right? Like she went to buy drugs and it was one of those deals where you go to buy drugs and the person selling you the drugs decides to rob you instead. No one's saying that. And that's certainly not what these kids are doing. They were not in the park selling drugs. Right? So it's not a question of a drug deal going wrong. Why she was in the park, I don't think has any bearing on what happened. The video shows three kids, we would assume would be the same kids, following a man before that. And they decided for whatever reason not to rob him. Maybe he was too big. Maybe there was some other thing that turned him away. But they were looking to rob somebody. It's not like they were in the park and whatever she was doing in the park had anything to do with them deciding to rob her. I mean, she could have been doing yoga. She could have been, I mean, the, she right. could have been just walking through. She could have been going to see her boyfriend. She could have been stargazing. I mean. She could have been smoking a joint, but it's irrelevant to why she got robbed. Absolutely. Right. It doesn't, all you know is that they were looking to rob somebody. No one's saying that, well, that guy was in the park. What was he doing in the park, Right. I mean, they were following someone looking to rob somebody. That's what it was. Michael, thank you so much for, for taking the time in the middle of no, what I know is a busy reporting. Thank you. Um, I'll talk to you soon. All right. God bless you. Thank you. So Christina Greer is uh, in Portugal living her best life. Um, but you also you <laughs> spent a lot of time up at uh, up at Columbia, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, some days I could probably tell you to the minute how long I spent at Columbia. So I was there, um, and I started fall 2001 uh, to get my PhD in political science. 
and I left campus uh, summer of 2006 for a fellowship. So I was in the Columbia neighborhood for that length of time. When Morningside Park was a very different park, um, pretty much during the day, open air junk market. Um, you can buy needles and uh, all types of people engaging in illicit activities in broad daylight. And yeah, it, was, it, was, it reminded me of, for those of you who you know, read literature, Richard Wright's novella, Rite of Passage, it was essentially um, still that park, even in the early off. And did Columbia instruct students about watching out or taking care with the park? Did it take any sense of ownership or, or stewardship of, of this park that, that isn't in Morningside Heights, right? It's, it's down below. Or was this just a, a separate world? So I don't know what Columbia told undergrads. We definitely weren't told things as graduate students. Because, you know, during undergraduate orientation, I went to school right outside of Boston and Medford. And during our undergraduate orientation, they literally told us to, like, stay with me, Orange Line. Never go in the Orange Line. It's the thing to find in the world. Don't do it. It's a subway line. Um, and then you find out that, you know, the Orange Line just happened to be where black people lived. Um, and so that was a very explicit sort of freshman orientation when I was in undergrad. So I don't know if Columbia did something like that for freshmen, you know, stay within these particular neighborhoods. Um, it definitely wasn't the case when with our graduate student orientation. It was just one of those things where, you know, for those of us who were raised in cities, you can, you get a feel for things. You know, no one really has to tell you something, even if it's broad daylight. You know, if you see vials and needles uh, and people stumbling from nicks and crannies in a park, then you pretty much assume this isn't a park that, that I would go in uh, during any time of the day, even as a shortcut. So, so this park, right, Columbia's got an $11 billion endowment. Like, there are no lights in the park. Is this is this something the university should have some role in, or is this just outside of their, their the, sphere? I don't know if the university really considers the park part of campus, because on Morningside, if you look at a map, Morningside um, Drive, you know, sort of buttresses the far east end of the campus, and then you sort of get down into the park. And when I was there in the early off, the other side of the park had yet to be gentrified. Now that the other side of the park is gentrified, you see a lot more people going through the park. You also now, coincidentally, conveniently, there's a dog park. There is a really nice um, children's park with swings um, and slides and sprinklers. Um, And so definitely the park has been, quote, unquote, cleaned up, if you will. But that's largely because of the real estate on the east side of Columbia and the park. So there's never anything explicit. Um, but you definitely see the changing demographics of the park during the day in the past 20 years that I lived in the neighborhood. And when we were talking with Michael Daly, he said at one point that if this had just been an 18-year-old woman from Harlem who'd been killed in the park, this wouldn't be what the conversation is a week later. I have been wrote a bit about this for the news, and I've been thinking, thinking about this a lot, like the murders that get outsized attention. I'd be interested in your thoughts about whether that's inescapable for whatever reasons or what could happen to shift those dynamics uh, within the media and within the broader conversation for the murders we stop and become a larger collective conversation, which often seem to involve also I mean, joggers. I mean, Harry, like, let's be real. You know, like, I know for a fact that my life in the media is not valued the same as a white girl. I know that. 
kind of definitely that my life is valued the same as a blonde white girl. I mean, the fact that we still know about John Benny Ramsey and there are all these other white girls who who met tragic end, which is tragedy. Like, I'm not saying that it's not, but we know that there's thousands of black girls who are missing. You know, it just doesn't get reported. And I know that. I mean, there is nothing that trumps a white girl's murder in the media, ever. Um, A lot of it is just, it's not just, but a lot of it comes down to Geography. There are certain tabloids that shall not be named that don't even send runners out to East New York or Brownsville when there's a murder. They don't want to bother. Well, that goes back to Mullen's point, though, where it's just, you know, there's certain people who are from, quote, unquote, good families, so this shouldn't happen to them. And then there are other families that aren't good families, so it doesn't matter if they lose a child or lose a loved one. I mean, this goes back to, you know, a much larger, longer historical conversation where... You know, anyone who's just clutching their pearls saying, like, well, I don't know if it's Lehman's fault, this is a tragedy. It's like, we know the facts. Here's some facts. One, it is a tragedy. Two, this should never happen to any parent, you know, or any child under any circumstance. Three, a whole community at Columbia University in Barnard is in mourning. And it's, it's something that will probably change the culture of the university for years to come. But we also know these facts. If it were a black girl at Barnard, that gets some attention. He's probably not going to get a week's worth of attention and the level of uh, emotion that we've seen. Shoot, if it were a black girl from Harlem, I don't even know if it would make a front page of the paper or the paper at all. So knowing that, I move through the world knowing that my life is valued differently in the eyes of the media because we also know, I mean, when you think about Mike Brown or Tamir Rice, or, you know, I can go on and on and on. Trayvon Martin. Black people who are murdered are villainized in the media immediately, right? The New York Times said, you know, Mike Brown was no angel. Who is an angel? I'm sorry, I've yet to meet an angel, right? I know that they would, if, I, if anything ever happened to me when I was a student at Columbia, they would have gone through my transcripts, they would have seen if I had ever gotten a parking ticket. It was to be to justify my death. Where it's here, that doesn't happen with white people. They're always given the benefit of the doubt. I mean, it's that... different roots. Like, oh, he's such a good student. And, you know, he's even Burger King, for God's sake. So we know these things. We pretend that we don't. But I think the frustrating piece is that, although it's a tragedy, it sets up this trope of bad black boys from the ghetto, you know, good white girl from Virginia. Um, and Mullins, in his weird way of trying to advocate for more money and more policing is trying to make her sort of a low-level villain to justify hyper-policing and cracking calls against black folks. So, so that is happening here, interestingly, to to a white victim, right? I mean, this is basically, she was no angel. Although Mullins did quarter apologize. He said he, he, he wasn't aiming it at the family. Um, he was aiming it at the Blasio for what for what little that is worth. Right, and but... And so he's using her as a proxy to, to try and get something from de Blasio and get something for himself um, in this very hand-fisted, inappropriate way. Um, and it's, you know, this is why people are so shocked at what he said, because that doesn't happen when white people are murdered, or white girls especially. It definitely happens when black people are murdered. I mean, that's just it's common practice. I mean, the fact that he even said good family, I mean, that's the piece that I'm still hung up on, because... What is, just because you have money and resources doesn't make you a good family. I was trying for my whole life. I know a lot of rich people who are bad families. I know a lot of poor people who have really good families. They may have grown up in the project, but like they have a really great family. And 
his racialized view, this coded, it's not encoded for me, but coded for some, racialized view, the justification of who these things should happen to and who they shouldn't is, to me, very troubling. And the fact that he is in a position of power and a position to advocate for more resources or fewer resources for particular communities is what really upsets me. So, so Mullins, in his apology of sorts, right, after he said his comments about majors and a good family and marijuana were taken out of context and directed at Mayor de Blasio, doubled down there, actually, in this interesting way. He said, this student test majors is clearly a victim of a robbery homicide. She went to a prestigious school. Her family is suffering. Um, but in many ways, I blame the mayor for trying to slant this in a different direction. So, had she gone to CUNY, this would have been different. I mean, I, I just, yes. you know, he just said, you know, this is when my grandma would just say, stop talking. <laughs> just stop talking. You're making things worse. Right, but you I mean. It makes no sense. And you're just cut it out. I think what we have to remember is this. We have four tragedies here. We have test major and her family where it's like, you know, I expect for everything last night because the holiday season is coming. This is like the worst thing you could imagine. But it's also it's like there are three other families who are going to lose their sons, even if it is a temporary period of time, they're not going to ever be the same. And they, you know, they do need to think about and sort of have some sort of restitution for what they've done. But I do think that, you know, black boys don't get to be boys in the same way, right? When those boys are taken in, no one's going to give them Burger King and, like, tell them, like, hey, keep your chin up, buddy. Like, you know, it'll be okay. Like, that's, that's not going to happen to them ever. They're never going to be given the benefit of the doubt. And they were even younger than someone, say, like, Dylan Roof. Even the headline of Daly's piece, which is the little kids uh, suspected in Tessa Major's murders, there's you know, an implication that you're drawing a distinction between these kids and your regular high school kids that hang out in the park, in the neighborhood, that they're not all taking that extra step to try and rob somebody. I think that a lot of the stuff coming out about the kids and the amping up of juvenile delinquency or stealing of stuff from the deli or getting into physical fights with their girlfriends is that these kids should be considered a smaller statistic that they get to a point where they amp up to the to the place of like robbery. I mean, going back to what you had said about trying to find anything in a kid's past, one of the reasons why the Khalif Browder was such a story is because he was allowed to be such a story. I mean, what other young man who had trauma from Rikers Island who may have hurt himself over that trauma has ever been allowed to be a story. Right. But we also need to realize that he was also used as a political agenda to push forward the Clues Rikers movement, which is borderline real estate boondoggle. Right. You know, so it's like, I appreciate the fact that we know about Clues Browder and we can move forward and make sure that this happens to fewer and fewer people moving, you know, in the future. But let's also be clear, it's certain elected who had a political agenda to close Rikers and they lobbed onto that story. I mean, I think this one's a little, this case is slightly different in the sense that these boys are so young. I mean, we're talking about middle school where you have even middle-class white folks who live in the area who are saying, like, listen, we know that 13-year-olds just do not have the mental capacity to fully understand the extent of their actions and consequences. 
until it comes to this really tragic end for, I think, four people. That um, I think it's really telling that you're sort of, you know, just anecdotally, you know, Harry, some of the people that were on WNYC with us and, you know, different anecdotes that I've heard, we've had people where if the boys were 18, I think these same people would be calling for, like, lock them up, throw away the key. Oh, my gosh, we cannot have, you know, folks stabbing people in the park. But because they're so young, it's like something is off. And it seems like a robbery scenario just gone horribly wrong with someone who doesn't fully understand the consequences for their actions. It's a, it's a series of nightmares. And, you know, these are very young people. You're talking about an 18-year-old victim and three robbers who are collectively younger than I am. And I'm not that old. Well, Harry, you're kind of old. But, I mean, in the, they go through this in the city today. Um, Aline Grinch, they do a pretty good job of kind of outlining some of these uh, questions and how to unpack this set of complexities when you have a murder and such kind of egregious violence, but also in the hands of such young kids, um, what what all the factors are that you have to think about. Well, I mean, I think also, you know, when you're dealing with, with stabbings or, you know, sort of things happening quickly in the moment, you know, I don't, I don't know what's in the hearts and minds of these boys at all, but I mean, I, I'm curious to think, you know, I really, I really doubt that they went to the park looking to kill someone. You know, that doesn't seem to be the MO. Chrissy, thank you for stealing the time from, uh, from Portugal and the sun to, uh, to hang with us. We miss you. And look, there were more robberies in Morningside Park last year than in any other park in the city, than in Central Park or Prospect Park, which are massively bigger. In your view, is there some need here for more policing as we're looking forward and processing what's happened and the city's response to it? Or is that still not the answer? Well, I mean, we know that there will be more police in that park, just in light of that incident. Um, I think that the interesting thing is that park has always had troubles, and so why now, right? I mean, we've had the data. So if we knew that Morningside Park was disproportionately more susceptible to crime, why is it that, you know, some sort of lights or cameras or even police weren't dispatched? a year or 10 years ago since we've had that data? It's a good question. Chrissy, thank you. We will uh, talk to you soon and good travels. Okay, thank you all. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. holidays. F-A-Q. Before we get to our credits, things are going to be a little different at FAQ over the next couple weeks. Alex Lynn is going to be taking the wheel while Chrissy Greer travels the world and Harry Siegel naps. Alex, tell us about what's coming up with FAQ and also about what's going to be happening on Canal Street in January. So we have a bunch of uh, cool things coming up. 
basically FAQ the next two episodes we need to record on Christmas and New Year's Eve. And nobody else wants to do it except me. Hooray. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do yet, but it's going to be interesting. I can guarantee you. So take a listen on Christmas Day when you clearly have nothing else to do. And also New Year's Day when you're nursing some kind of hangover. Do they know it's Christmas time at all? All I want for Christmas. Okay, anyway. So in January, we have some really exciting things coming up. I, Alex Brooklyn, am doing news as conceptual art, I guess, on Canal Street and Wallplay. The company that puts artists in empty storefronts has put me in an empty storefront to do an anecdotal ode to New York journalism. It'll be interactive. I'm going to do a bunch of cool stuff. And most importantly, I'm going to have those cool little Greek coffee cups and an old school coffee machine. That's the most fun thing. We are going to be recording FAQ out of there. We're going to be recording Manifesto, a podcast out of there. And we're going to have a host of like panels and drop-in city journalists that are reporting on everything from homicide to New York transit. Um, We're also going to have a little newsstand where we're going to be selling the daily papers and pretty much giving away the weekly papers from all around the city. Alex, if people wanted to come and see this, what dates will it be there? And what is the address? So the address is 325 Canal Street. and 325. 325 Canal. And it'll be open pretty much from January 6th all the way through February 8th. Yes, that includes Fashion Week. Um, and... I invite people to drop by, take a look at the art installation, buy a paper, and maybe you'll be there during one of our recordings. This will be the introduction for Racket Media, the umbrella company that's kind of housing a bunch of these podcasts and city-focused content machines that we're creating. Anyway, I hope to see you there, and there'll be a full schedule and a website and all these things coming very shortly. So now, instead of telling us what's wrong with FAQ by email or by tweet, you can come and deliver your message in person. Directly to me. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media. We're hosted at the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research. Special thanks to our guest, the great Michael Daly of the Daily Beast, named after him, of course, and sort of as a guest this week, Professor Christina Greer. All the way from Portugal. Adam Kamara mixed and mastered this week's episode. And remember, the fact. 